thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. And that's with me, Chris Smith. And this week we've got part two of our Titans of Science interview with Helen Sharman, the first Briton in space, where she tells me about the ins and outs of working on a space station. Those who tuned in last week will remember Helen giving us a fascinating account of the build-up to and launching of the rocket that carried her up to the Mir space station. But once she got there, what was day-to-day life like? In that moment when the acceleration stopped, the G-forces fell away and you realised that you were floating, that must also be pretty elating. First, when the, rock, the final rocket engine is, is jettisoned. You're right, that's when we do feel weightless, but we're still strapped into our seats. So it takes another two and a half hours before we, we've checked that everything is safe enough for us to unstrap and take off our spacesuits. But I could, obviously, I was feeling weightless, my body was responding to feeling weightless. Um, I, I was no longer sitting down in the back of my seat. Although I was strapped in, I could sometimes feel a bit of a gap between the back of my seat and, and me, my back, which was very nice because it was very hot in those spacesuits, quite a lot of sweat. And, uh, and so I could sometimes feel that the ventilation, the spacesuit was actually going behind my back and cooling me off a bit, and that, that felt nice. But yes, it wasn't until you could really unstrap and float out. But even then, the spacecraft is quite small. Um, but it was enough to, to sort of do a little, a tiny little tumble um, and to be able to pull yourself through and, and just yeah, stretch out a little bit. But yeah, the weird thing is, is our actual bodies. And again, this is part of the training, but never actually having felt it before. So the bodies react by um, body fluids. For, that's what you experience first, really. And they tend to migrate more towards the upper chest and head because no longer being pulled down towards our feet by gravity. And it takes a while for our bodies to properly adapt and get rid of what we see as too much fluid in our brains. But for a while, we're all... It's, it's, you know, if you ever see a photograph of an astronaut and they all look fat and puffy-faced, you know that they've not long been in space. It takes about two or three days for you to get rid of this extra fluid. Some of it does come out of it as additional urine in the toilet, and sometimes it's, it is just then redistributed throughout the body. But yeah, it's, it does, you feel as though you've got this pressure, so your nose is a bit more congested. One of the reasons why we don't want to take colds into space as well, that would be really unpleasant. People also talk about visual changes. And people's retinas change shape a bit, don't they? Did that happen to you? Did you have any visual changes? So my retina must have changed shape, yes, because this pressure in the eye must have pushed it, pushed it back a bit, giving me a bit more of a sort of a, yeah, a high-pressure eyeball, a bit like glaucoma does for people sometimes. But I didn't notice any particular um, visual changes. Perhaps, you know, being quite young, I was in my late 20s, maybe my, I was still quite accommodating then. But we do know that it tends to, although it may happen to 
most astronauts, probably does happen to all astronauts, most astronauts come back to Earth and then the, the eye at least reverts to what seems to be a semblance of what it was before. Some, though, for some people, it doesn't. And so some astronauts then are wearing glasses for the rest of their lives. Um, I now wear glasses, but that's just because I'm getting older and so I need to wear glasses anyway. Uh, but no, I don't think my uh, really had any visual changes that were noticeable to me in space. And back on Earth, there was nothing permanent. What were the experiments you were doing? That you, you, you mentioned that you were doing a mixture of some UK experiments, but a lot of Russian experiments. What sorts of things did you have to do? Yeah, the UK ones were mostly based around what um, school students had uh, suggested, so they were my sort of um, spare time experiments. Um, the Soviet experiments were... For me, lovely variety. I've always liked variety. And so be, to be able to do stuff, I mean, honestly, as a chemist, like growing, growing protein crystals, absolutely amazing. So I grew luciferase, which is a protein that we often use as scientists to attach to other proteins. Um, and when it glows, perhaps in the presence of ultraviolet light, then we can see the presence of the molecule that's really of interest. But yes, just growing protein crystals, you can't grow them very big on Earth. Um, and those that we can grow on Earth tend to have got lots of broken bits, dislocations, we call them, between the molecules within in that crystal but you can grow protein crystals bigger and much more beautifully formed in space so the molecules are just positioned right around each other and by doing that we can then bring some of these crystals back to earth and the knowledge that we can gain by doing that uh, means that we can... You know, the idea is that we design drugs for treatment of certain diseases on Earth. In fact, recently we've um, probably heard Dutch end muscular dystrophy. We've got a treatment for that now which can reduce significantly reduce the progress of that. And that's been because of a protein associated with that disease that was grown as a crystal in space. So, yeah, so as a chemist to go crystals, protein crystals, fantastic. It was a variety of things. Plants, it was really interesting to see how plants grow. The roots grow in weird directions. In a magnetic field, a strong magnetic field, you can force roots to grow in a particular direction in space. Sometimes plants have a hormone, and so those roots will grow against the direction of the light. So, of course, the green leaves will point towards the light. You still get that. But, um, but yes, to be able to, um, to look at how pr- plants grow and with a view to long-term spaceflight as well as growing them on Earth. And again, these experiments have have really come on in leaps and bounds in the last few decades. I think that probably the most surprising experiment to me was one that um, felt the most boring at the the time. It was, I had a a frame, I had to put a load of different films of ceramic in a frame. There were different ceramics and the idea was to investigate future spacecraft exteriors. And for me that was a fairly dull experiment. I just bung them into the frame but I did have to use the airlock and never having, not having a space walk using the airlock was my nearest bit to going out into space. So I got all these in the frame and got them in the airlock and then sort of closed the airlock on the inside, exposed it from to outer space, so the radiation, the vacuum and then after sort of a couple of days brought them back into the space station and all I really had to do was then bung them into a machine that would um, sort of um, look at the surface and how they'd been degraded, perhaps, and then um, give the results back to the scientists. But when I brought these back into the space station, there was a smell. And it was the first time I had smelled anything since I arrived on the space station. Because, of course, you don't get a window that opens and gives you the fresh of... of that, that we're sitting here on the banks of the cow. I can't even smell the river. I couldn't smell that in space. I couldn't smell grass. I couldn't smell air. You just have this very sort of... Well, your brain doesn't register anymore that what, what smells there are up there. But, yeah, I brought this thing back in. And immediately, of course, my science brain said, oh, that must be the... It smelled like metal. And I thought, that must be the bare metal because the oxide layer must be stripped off by going to the vacuum. Made sense to me. I was like, you're nodding. It made sense to me too. 
But, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. I've discovered subsequently it's the, um, the radiation on the surface. In fact, it's, it's whatever you put outside the space station smells similarly of this metal, a bit like ozone. Um, if you have a, a space suit going outside, you bring your space suit back in, it smells the same. And so radiation just strips some of the bits of the molecules away, so we get these highly reactive free radicals on the surface of this, this material, and it's that that gives you this smell of ozone or bare metal but yeah first time i'd smelt anything in space amazing to, to smell space did you spend a lot of time gazing out of the window or did you struggle not to i'd been advised before i flew by an astronaut an NASA astronaut who'd only flown once that um he said one of his biggest regrets was not having looked out of the window enough so he said you'll be so keen to make sure you do a good job so wanting to repeat the experiments and and communicate with mission control but don't forget, take that experience. And so I determined to take his advice, and I'm so glad I did. But yeah, it was—it is just a magical view. And I think even the astronauts that had been up there six months, you know, still enjoyed looking out at the end of a working day. That's what we would do. You know, we'd find the biggest window we could, and it was actually a bit naughty because it was um, about a 40 centimetre diameter window, but it was sapphire. Now, sapphire, rather than borosilicate glass or something, but sapphire means you can get all the ultraviolet through it. So that if you want to take some good ultraviolet pictures of the Earth with ultraviolet cameras, then you can do that. Lovely. But, of course, it does mean that you can get a bit sunburnt if you're not careful. So, you know, But it's also very, very precious. So it had a hatch on the outside, partly to keep it safe, but also to keep to stop it from getting hit by bits of space debris and micrometeorites and so on. So, anyway, we would open, be a bit naughty, and open this hatch because it was big enough for all five of us, my crew of three, including me and then these other two, to gather around. And we'd sort of get our heads, if you can imagine, sort of our heads all pointing towards the middle of this, <laughs> with this circular window. And we would just look out. You know, talk about our families and friends as we passed over parts of the earth where we knew people um, and just really enjoy the view. And not, not just of earth as well, actually, you know, the other way. If this space station happened to be pointed the other way at the time, you can look at space and those stars. And that, for me, that was, I think, the, probably the most awesome sight, really. You know, we have this sort of perhaps rather American word, awesome, but really, if anything's awesome, it is that view of stars from space. Because no longer, you know, you don't have the atmosphere to filter out some of the light so just stars absolutely everywhere gorgeous and the living conditions what was it like eating drinking sleeping we mentioned it briefly during takeoff bodily functions <laughs> um, it, the Mir space station has been likened to well let's say if you think of international space station as a perhaps a three or four star hotel Mir space station was a bit like going on a family camping trip so yes it was basic but it had everything we needed really i was more than comfortable there i've never been one for diamonds and tiaras and uh, you know needing to have all my physical home comforts but it had you know enough air to breathe and a low enough concentration of carbon dioxide so we didn't feel ill when we could operate it was reasonably enough cool i say cool because the biggest problem of having people in space is that we give off a load of heat so we have to cool the space station rather than try to think it's not, it's not cold it's actually too hot um, and it was a bit too warm really and we floated around in our underwear our t-shirts and long johns most of the time i put my formal jacket and trouser suit on to do any proper photographs and sort of tv interviews but um yeah most of the time it, it, we spent in uh, in in this sort of 
semblance of underwear, really. <laughs> so no, not, not so glamorous if you think about that. Mission Control said, oh, your face looks really pink and rosy. You're very, very, <laughs> must be feeling very well. Said, mm, a bit warm, actually. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, it was, but that was fine. Um, we had enough food there. The food was all sent up in advance. Space food, right? So it was dried, it was tinned. But it was all very long life stuff. Russian food can be quite fatty. And I was growing up on a sort of a fairly, relatively low fat diet. So for me, I don't like that feel of sliminess in my mouth. But space food go, you know, goes off if you have too much fat because it goes rancid after a while. So, yeah, it was um, low, relatively low fat. So I was well happy. Uh, things like fruit juice. So we had dried apricot juice. So dried apricots, you'd add water to it. Um, but in order to get it hydrated, you have to add hot water. And it had to be hot anyway because that was how we partly how we cleaned the water, made sure that it was hot at point of use. So we would add hot water to the fruit juice. But you know, how do you cool it on a warm space station, right? So you might, you might put it by some of the fans for the air circulation, but, you know, it never really properly cools it. And in the end, we never bothered. So you just drink hot fruit juice. So it's that kind of thing. You have a, a tin of meat and potatoes, which technically we could have heated up, but it took so long. So you, you eat cold meat and potatoes and hot fruit juice. But, you know, it's fine. We were healthy. We were happy with that. So, yes, it was, it was, it was fine. There were two little bedroom areas. And being the, the foreign guest, I was allowed to have one of these little bedroom areas. But they were just like little cabins, really. Um, just enough room for one sleeping bag up and down the wall of this, of this little cabin area. There's no door to it. And the commander of the space station had the other, the other little cabin just opposite. And the other three had to just find a space. But, you know, it doesn't really matter. You fasten your sleeping bag to... So long as it's something flat, you don't want to have a bit sort of a, you know, a, a knob or a button or something sticking to the middle of your back. But, um, but as long as it's, you know, it's nice and flat, you fasten your sleeping bag bag and climb in and fall asleep so your yeah, food was fine we had a toilet and on the space station we had a toilet with a door whoa so, <laughs> so yeah a little sort of little little door that we could sort of move across how does that work because there is no up and down so when we flush things down on earth gravity does the work but what happens in space yeah, we flush with air, so an airflow means that anything that you do in that flow of air that gets taken up into the toilet, so it's it's moved through. So you can imagine urine gets um, goes through a funnel um, and then through a tube, um, and so it's, a, it's just an airflow going through that. Solid wastes, um, you have a sort of a bit of a bigger hole for that, and a bag goes into that hole with some little holes in the bottom of that bag, so the airflow can continue to go through it. So yes, yeah, so everything that you do just sort of goes gets pulled with that flow of air and then when you finished you close that bag um, it's like an elasticated top and then push that down into the toilet and then put another bag over the top ready for the next person so it's all right the smells are all taken away and of course we can recycle that and that's one of the lovely things about being in space you can recycle the, the contents of the toilet brilliant ingenious engineering not the solid wastes but the liquid wastes are cleaned and then electrolyzed so passing electric current through the water means that you can get the hydrogen and oxygen from the water um, oxygen which mixes with the air so we can breathe it Hydrogen, when I was in space, was just wasted. But now um, we're starting to mix the hydrogen with carbon dioxide that we're breathing out in a, a chemical process called the Sabatier process. Um, so we're creating methane and a bit more water. So, yeah, we've got rocket fuel, let's say, for the future. So, yeah, wonderful way of recycling. It's one, one of the joys, actually, of talking to young people about space is that although you're, you're talking about what it's like to live in space, it's a science lesson. And every sentence is a science lesson. Brilliant.
You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and this week we are back with Helen Sharman and our Titans of Science series. We were just talking to her about her time on a space station, but now it's time for her to return to Earth. You must have been sad to leave that. that you, the enthusiasm that is pouring away from you, you can tell that you found that a wrench to come back. It was really hard um, to come back to Earth, partly because I wanted to stay longer. I'd been in space for eight days, and two of them on the Soyuz spacecraft, so only six on board the space station. So if you like, six really useful science days. So I would have loved to have done more. I was enjoying, physically enjoying it, um, feeling weightless. I'd adapted by then to feeling weightless. I wasn't feeling spacey. It was just a joy. And that conviviality, that feeling of being a kindred spirit with your crewmates, that teamwork was just fabulous. And I didn't want to leave behind my crew. So those two people that we'd worked so hard with in the training and then um, having such a tough time getting to the space station with, I had to say goodbye to them and leave them behind. And I thought I was saying goodbye for five months. In the end, one of them spent ten months. Another story, but... Um, that Valery Polyakov, who was there? Because a record was set on that space station, wasn't it, for longest period in space continuously 437 days something like that he was there yeah incredible so yeah polykov spent yeah the, the longest time ever consecutively in space he was a, a medic and he determined to come back to earth fitter than when he went into space now he didn't sadly but he did prove that you know this really really long-term space flight is quite possible but no i flew with um sergey krikulyov not polykov and art sabarsky totally art sabarsky but it was um krikulyov who became known as the last soviet citizen because he did two missions back to back it was a political thing in order to keep the Kazakhs happy and it's Kazakhstan is where the launch and the landing site is so in order to keep the Kazakhs happy the Kazakh mission was brought forward alongside the Austrian mission so an Austrian and a Kazakh flew into space with the commander but there was no engineer to replace Sergei Krukulov who I flew with he was my engineer so he did two missions back to back and remained in space for 10 months instead of his five so yes when he came back to earth Russia was already a separate country from the Soviet Union, so that was the time, the timeline. But yeah, it was just a wrench to leave them behind. So yeah, hugs all round, but also tears all round. You know, it, just that saying goodbye was um, was really tough. Um, but of course, looking forward to coming back to Earth as well, and um, the experiments continue, especially on the human body, getting back to Earth. So it, it was part of what I had to do, and I knew it, but still tough. Did you have to do any exercises and things? Because we're now very cognizant of the corrosive effect that the space environment has on our skeletons, on other aspects of our health. Was that known at the time? Were you doing all of that? Or was it judged that you were there for such a short period of time, it really didn't matter? Yeah, we did know that um, the human body degrades in space, bone mass, muscle mass in particular, and others. And a lot of my experiments were based on, you know, on our adaptation to, to space flight. I was taking blood samples, for instance, of myself and the crew um, just, just during those first few days as just as one of many adaptations. But, um, but no, I was up for just such a short time that uh, my body degradation was going to be minimal so I didn't feel like waste my time doing exercise um, although in a way it might have been quite fun to have worked the treadmill a bit I like running on earth anyway um, and I like cycling those are the two methods of, of exercise then though we thought that it was having to um, stamp on that treadmill and do that um, uh, to, in order to keep the bones strong to stress the bones we thought we had to give a big sort of impact of our heels on that treadmill whereas more recently we've discovered it's more this resistive exercise generally so they do an equal 
equivalent of pushing weights but in space. So it's sort of pushing against and re- this resistive machine. Um, but it's that. And, of course, you can strengthen all sorts of bones doing that. Um, so whether you're doing bands on Earth, and that's, that's really, I think, one of the, the big, big messages um, that spaceflight has given to all of us on Earth, whatever age, whatever gender we are, if we keep on with this resistive exercise, we're stressing our bones by doing that. So you're strengthening your muscles, but you're indirectly strengthening your bones as well. You keep them strong. Um, and then when we do start to lose bone mass later on in life, hopefully we won't get to such a stage where we've actually got so little we've got osteoporosis. So, yeah, this is a resistive exercise. You heard it in space first. <laughs> How did you get home? Home was inside the Soyuz spacecraft that was already docked to the space station when I arrived. So I had to transfer my seat, which was made specially to fit my body. So I had to transfer that, or that my commander did, from the spacecraft I arrived in to the one that I was going to come back to Earth inside. So yeah, we say our goodbyes and then um, get into our space spacecraft, close the hatch from the space station. Um, and then when we're all sort of sitting in our seat uh, and our seats strapped in, um, we physically push our spacecraft away from the station so with springs you know we, we un, un, unlatch the um the actual um connectors and just push ourselves away using these springs and uh, and that once we're far enough away we can fire retro rockets because of course we're in orbit because we're falling around the earth and we're only at that stage what 400 kilometers or so above the earth's surface so gravity is still quite strong there but we're f- going so fast that we fall around the Earth. So we need to slow down in order to return to the Earth's surface. And to slow down, of course, it's just the opposite of speeding up. To speed up, you use a rocket engine and you push the gases out of the back. And to slow down, you use a rocket engine and you push the gases out of the front. Um, so, yeah, that's what we did with our main engine thrusters, pushing out of the front. That slowed us enough to come back through the atmosphere or towards the atmosphere. And then the atmosphere itself slowed us. And actually on Soyuz, you have about five and a half G of deceleration. And that feels heavy. Now, four and a half during launch didn't feel so bad compared to one G on the ground, right? Five and a half compared to zero G in space. That, that felt heavy. Um, didn't last for that long, um, it sort of it builds up to five and a half and it's a bit bumpy anyway. Um, and then when the atmosphere is thick enough, you've got some parachutes that open and they, that actually just slows you enough to come back to Earth. And then a few soft landing engines to make the landing a bit softer. But it always feels like a car crash. Um, however many soft landing rocket <laughs> engines you seem to have. Um, so this, this is the thing. So come back on a, a SpaceX. Um, SpaceX, you land in the sea at the moment. But if you were to come back on one of the SpaceX rockets that are able to actually, you know, gently land on the ground, now that's something I'd love to experience. So it, it is quite a bump when you come down then? A huge bump, yes. Um, and in fact, we actually bumped. In fact, usually we bounce a bit. Um, it's rare that you sort of come back under your parachute and just sort of settle down like a modern SpaceX rocket. Um, and particularly if there's a bit of wind, your, your, these little engine, engines fire at an angle to the ground and so they push you head over heels and so you tend to tumble a little bit and we ended up on our sides actually. Um, but yes, it, 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 it is a bump. Um, I, the only injuries we had were from this tumbling. So I was strapped into my seat, that was fine, um, but my head was not strapped to the back of my helmet so my head came forwards um, and I had some microphones up at the front of my my lips so just my face sort of smashed into the microphone so just a little bit of bruising inside our lips where our teeth squashed our lips between our teeth and the the front of the helmet but that was it really Um, yeah we just had we knew the rescue team had seen us so we just had to wait for them and it took them about 20 minutes to arrive and then upright the spacecraft and drag us out. 
And the legacy has been huge because the fact that you're sitting talking to me, the fact I've seen you on television and I've seen the stories that you've spawned, I think the British taxpayer, had they paid for it, would have had a very sound investment. But the, the company that funded it and the Soviets certainly spent their money well, in my view. Well, thank you. I'd like to think that yeah, I've, I've sort of certainly put back, but I really did feel as though I should... Um, at least let people know what had happened. Um, and back in 1991, it was really a lot about talking and doing interviews, but it was um, the, the internet wasn't there and um, perhaps publishing a book, which is what I did. But I felt as though I needed... Uh, I, I, it was a British mission. It wasn't just mine. And I had you know, all that joy of it and all those experiences, and I felt as though I should share that. But what I didn't expect was part, part of me feeling I should share it. Um, I, I'd... Um, I was going on a tour of British schools. Um, so I didn't just talk to young people. I talked to all sorts of different groups of people. But the schools tour um, was quite changing for me because the students, well, school students, especially the young ones, give you immediate feedback. So if you're, if you're not really holding their attention the whole time, you know immediately. So they taught me how to give a talk, really. The teachers were great. They told me a bit about the curriculum and how to actually you know, talk with young people and how to come across better, how to lower the tone of your voice a bit, not to talk to such a high-pitched voice because it's much easier on your own voice apart from anything else. Um, the science advisors, as they were then, were absolutely brilliant about giving me hints and tips about how to use aspects of space flight to communicate science. And I've just got all of those people to thank because that made me realise that this wasn't just a space mission. This was a great way of communicating science to young people who so loved thinking about space and people who might not otherwise have thought about science. And back in the 1990s, it was before naked scientists were ever, ever doing their stuff. And, uh, and it, it was difficult, I think, for many people, unless they were involved in the science to feel somewhere to actually you know, find out about science. So, so yeah, I determined to, uh, that that was a good thing for me to do and it would, would put my spaceflight to good use as well, would be to become a science communicator. So, yeah, so thank you. So if you are one of those teachers listening in, if you are perhaps one of those students who gave me that immediate feedback or one of those science advisors, really, thank you. Was it not tricky, though, because you were in your 20s when you did all this and to have done that at that age to then have your feet back on the ground and live a normal life. Is that not really difficult? Because you talk to some politicians, you talk to other people who've done really high-powered things, really special things, and they say that it's really difficult to feel grounded after that. Oh, grounded, that's a good pun. <laughs> um, but I think, for me, being, a, being an astronaut became just part of my life. And... Although it was weird to start with feeling somehow, you know, because I was very well known. So going around the shops and you know, it would take me half an hour to buy a tin of beans <laughs> because people would, would find me and ask me what it was like. And that was lovely in many respects because it showed how interested people were with that mission and made me more and more keen to talk about it, I suppose. But I needed to get a job. I needed to pay the, pay the rent. I had bills. Um, it wasn't as though I was suddenly a, a wealthy millionaire or anything. So I did have to find something, not just that I wanted to do, but um, find an income as well. So there was some basic stuff that I had to get going in life. And perhaps that's, that's, what, that's, that's kept it all there. And the, my friends were, were, were very quickly find out, you know, your friends, the good friends are your friends and they will support you through thick and thin. I felt sorry for, for them and my family members sometimes when we, we might have been a bit intruded upon by some people, but people 
we're doing it with the best of intentions and it is lovely when people do that and so I, I've, I think I've managed to live a life whereby I've managed to keep that notoriety just enough so you know we can come here in Cambridge and I can walk down this lovely public footpath and nobody recognises me in context they might do and if I'd sitting next to a, a spacecraft or something or if I, I, I go to a science museum then, then maybe they would but I can be, be in public and by and large I can just, just be me um, with my friends, with my family, that's great. But if I do want to talk about space, if I do want to do a bit of that science communication, you know, that's also there too. So yeah, I've, I've tried to manage it and, and keep that balance. Last question. Often if you ask astronauts they'll tell you they take sneaky things into space. Did you sneak anything into space? Oh, what did I sneak? I mean, yes is the, is the quick answer. All sort of semi-official, um, because, of course, you can't really, really sneak a, a corned beef sandwich anymore, as I think one very early astronaut did. What did I take that was, sort of, that was just not special? I had 180 grams of personal luggage. Everything was there, so I didn't have to take even my toothbrush. So, you know, 180 grams. It, could have been, it should have been a couple of kilos, but we had to take a spare computer. So suddenly at the last minute it got reduced. But still, 180, you know, computers were big in those days and, and massy, massy. But 180 grams, I took a little comic strip that a friend had given me, you know, a paper comic strip, and then brought it back and gave it to him. There was a small, low value, but I'll call it a jewel, uh, I suppose a crystal, I guess, that, um, that another friend had given me, and I, I gave that back to her. Um, so, yes, they were basically personal items. My mum, many years before, had given me a safety pin, you know, probably when I left home to become a student. You, know, you never know when a safety pin might become useful. And I took a safety pin in space. And so that was sort of for my mum, really, a safety pin. So things like, oh, you know, I've just remembered, I took my Swiss army knife. Now, that probably was that most of my 180 grams. And I took that. My commander said, oh, that, that might be really useful. You'd think, why would you take a knife into space? My goodness. But after, when I came back to Earth, he said, oh, do you mind leaving that behind? <laughs> so, and he continued to use it. And then he brought it back with him. So he's got that one now. <laughs> an extraordinary story from an extraordinary pioneer. That is, unfortunately, all we have time for this week. But next week, our Titans of Science series will continue with another big one a director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases from 1984 to 2022 and Chief Medical Advisor to the President from 2021 to 2022. You may know this man as Anthony Fauci. He was extremely prominent across COVID and you won't want to miss hearing from him. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.